Well, thanks for joining in. And thank you again for all of those who have sent in questions via our comment section on our YouTube channel, also by email uh, and that kind of thing. We're very grateful for that. And and I have to say, I love the questions that have come in. They they really uh, are, are engaging and they demonstrate a real desire to know the word. And so that being said, I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate that. I think it's great that we can interact on this level. And of course, it blesses my heart anytime somebody wants to dig into the scripture. That's great. So uh, today I'm going to take a few questions from uh, Bill, who uh, sent um, these in. The first question is this, does God allow or cause the seal judgments, and are these the results of the removal of the Holy Spirit? Um, Okay, well, I think that first question, I think, is pretty straightforward to answer. In Revelation chapter 5 and 6, uh, Revelations four, Revelation chapters 4 and 5 give us a scene of the throne room where uh, John sees all this tremendous worship taking place. It's this uh, glorious explosion and expression of worship around the throne and holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. You are worthy, O Lord. And so I just so, to receive glory and power and all these things. It's an incredible, incredible scene. Even just to read, I, can, I can't even imagine what it was like to be standing there in the midst of this, watching this and taking in the sights and sounds. Well, in chapter 5, all of a sudden, it kind of shifts gears a little bit, and John looks and sees one sitting on the throne, and he who sat on the throne was holding a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed uh, with seven seals. And a call then goes forth, who is worthy to open the scroll? And no one is able to do so. Nobody is found worthy to open the scroll. Now, there is some discussion about what the scroll is. And of course, there are a number of different conjectures on that. Uh, Title deed to the earth, uh, the book of Revelation maybe being uh, unveiled, um, or maybe it is simply, and I tend to lean this way, uh, it is really the scroll of the opening of the judgments that God is bringing upon the earth um, here in, in in the very last days, during what we would call the, the tribulation or the 70th week of Daniel, predominantly focusing on the great uh, tribulation period. However, um, John is, whatever the scroll is, John is weeping convulsively over the fact that nobody is found worthy to open it until the lion of the tribe of Judah, as we see here in uh, verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and I behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so he sees... Um, he is told of the lion of the tribe of Judah, which, by the way, this is the only time that the word lion is applied to Christ in the book of Revelation. Uh, we see the word lion a couple of times, but this is the only time that it applies to him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is, however, in the same passage, also referred to as the lamb who has been slain. He is called the lamb 26 times in the book of Revelation. The word lamb appears one more time in reference to the Antichrist. Um, but ultimately, uh, as a counterfeit, but uh, 26 times, in other words, 26 to 1 in regard to his reference as the lamb. And he is the lion and the lamb in this in this passage. As the lion, he has overcome and is, has ultimately 
shown himself worthy in that. And as the lamb, he takes the scroll and begins in chapter six to break the seals. And of course, as he takes the scroll, the tremendous worship explodes once again about his worthiness, justly so, justifiably, obviously, rightly so. Uh, He is worshiped with blessing and honor and glory and power. Uh, He who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Um, Chapter 6 then begins the opening of these uh, seven seals. And so the question is, does the the Lord um, ultimately allow or cause uh, the seal judgments? I would say that once we see in verse 1 of chapter 6, now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice uh, like thunder, come and see, and I looked and behold, a white horse who sat on it had a bow, uh, and a crown was given to him, and he went out. Uh, conquering and to conquer. Um, I think it becomes very obvious that the seals being broken by the Lamb would imply that he is not just allowing these things to happen, he is actually the reason why they are happening when they happen. In other words, if the seals don't get broken, ain't nobody going anywhere. The 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 rider on the white horse and, and such uh, is not released to conquer uh, and conquering and such. And each seal that follows after that, it says how he broke the seal, speaking of the lamb uh, who sits on the throne. And so as he takes the scroll from the father, the son breaks the seals, the lamb of God breaks each of the seals. And with each broken seal comes a succeeding um, event that takes place. Now this, by the way, uh, it's hard not to connect this here. Uh, In terms of our sense of when the wrath of God begins, our definition of what constitutes the wrath of God, uh, for example, Paul in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and also in chapter 1, by the way, verse 10, uh, we're told that we will not be subject to the wrath of God. We've been delivered from the wrath of God. But the question, therefore, is when does the wrath of God start? Uh, and different camps, of course, exist on on the answer. Uh, you know, sort of sit on the different answers to, these, to this question. Uh, some feel that the wrath of God doesn't come until the sixth seal uh, is open, because it is at that point that um, the people on the earth recognize that the wrath of God has now come. They call for the rocks to fall upon them, because the wrath of the uh, of, of of God has come. And who is able to stand? As we see there in chapter six, verse seventeen, as the sixth seal opens. Um, now, just to kind of finish that thought, um, I, I believe that the wrath of God begins with the opening of the first seal. Some would, well, some would say, and would make a, a, a case for, I'm not saying there's not some merit to this view, but some would say that, that the first uh, five seals constitute the wrath of Antichrist. Uh, in other words, the Antichrist comes on the scene, and then, of course, as we read on, there follows, uh, you know, um, uh, wars and, and famines and pestilence and all these things as we read on through here. Um, well, first through the fourth seal, I should say, and then the fifth seal is the cry of the martyrs under the altar and that. But my argument to that, and what is traditionally the argument to the question of, uh, you know, uh, to the, the arg- whether or not this, this is, is the wrath of God or wrath of Antichrist, is once again that if the, if the Lamb doesn't open the seal, nothing happens. And so therefore, it is, it is beholden upon the Lamb to start that process as he breaks that first seal. And then Antichrist, who is the rider on the white horse, by the way, some think that is uh, Christ on the white horse. It's not, actually. Uh, and I think there are reasons to believe that and hold that view, strong ones. 
Um, but it is the Antichrist who ultimately is unleashed with the breaking of the first seal, but he can't go about his work until the Lamb permits it and even, again, causes it. Uh, I would say that it's semantical to say that he unleashes it but isn't the cause of it. He's the reason for this happening. And I would say that that's not a difficult concept to really accept either. Uh, For example, if you think in the Old Testament, um, an example like in Habakkuk where God uses the Chaldeans as his rod of correction upon his own people. He judges his own people through this uh, through this other nation in that. Well, um, I think there's a lot more that could be said about this, but let me just kind of throw a few more elements in here and then we'll move on to the next questions in that. Um, if in fact this is the beginning of the wrath of God, then that would mean that the church would have been removed via the rapture, which we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, prior to the wrath of God or the uh, releasing of Antichrist to go ahead and begin the process of, of, of you know, bringing the world together behind him, ultimately to stand against Christ at Christ's return. Um, Daniel, the idea of the signing of the seven-year peace covenant uh, with Israel, uh, this would be what's happening here as the first seal is broken. In other words, the opening of the first seal uh, is very, very likely connected, therefore, then with the, um, or at least closely connected to the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. So um, a lot of things are involved in how we see this opening of this first seal. But to answer the question plainly, uh, maybe that was more than you were asking to know, but um, but I think that he's not just allowing it, I think he's causing it. In other words, he's bringing it to pass by virtue of being the one who breaks the first seal. Not just the first, but each of the seals that follow afterward. Are these the results of the removal of the Holy Spirit? Um, well, let me clarify something. First off, uh, when the church is removed, which I think is what's you know would take place prior to, to Revelation 6, verse 1, the breaking of the first seal, I think the church would be gone by then. When we say the removal of the Holy Spirit, we want to be careful that we're very, very clear about what is meant by, by um, and I assume what's in view here is the idea of the Holy Spirit as the restrainer. Uh, spoken of uh, in in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, where once the restrainer is taken out of the way, and then the man of sin shall appear, and such. So, the Holy Spirit Himself is God, very God of very God, in the same way that Christ, the Eternal Word, the Son, is also God, and the Father is God. We believe as Christians in the triune nature of 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 the deity of God. He is one in being yet eternally existent in three distinct persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, uh, as has been expressed in the creeds and such of the church throughout our history. We don't claim to understand how it is that God can be triune in nature and yet not be uh, you know multiple a plurality of gods and that kind of thing, but God has been very very clear that there is one God. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We do not believe in three gods. Yet we do believe something quite unique about the nature of God, and we believe that he has expressed himself this way in Scripture. That's why we hold the view. So that being said, when we talk about the Holy Spirit being removed, well, the Holy Spirit can't really be removed any more than God the Father would be removed. Uh, He is God, and so therefore he's everywhere at the same time. Uh, When David said, where can I go to flee from your presence and where can I go to hide from the heights of heaven to the depths of Sheol, you are there. This would be true of each of the distinct personages within the being that is called God. There's, There's no point or place or time in history or anywhere in existence that God is not, right? He is everywhere at the same time. And so the Holy Spirit is not removed 
when uh, when the restrainer is re- is removed. If this is in fact what Paul is referring to, and I believe it is, but rather what is being spoken of there in Second Thessalonians two is that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit as active and working through the church. The church is removed, and the Holy Spirit's activity through this body of believers known as the body of Christ are removed in the rapture as the bridegroom comes to take his bride home. However, the Holy Spirit is still quite active during the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, and even into the great tribulation. Uh, the gospel goes forth. There is wit- There are witnesses sealed uh, that go forth uh, presumably as evangelists, if we understand chapter 7 and, and what fo- uh, when they're introduced and what follows immediately after with those from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is not removed, but just the Holy Spirit's activity through the church comes to an end when the restrainer is removed. In other words, the church and the Holy Spirit working through the church would be the restrainer that is spoken of in, in 2 Thessalonians 2. At least that would be my perspective, and that's the common pre-tribulational rapture view. So, um, yeah, and, and, and I think that the Antichrist being released, to kind of follow up and finish that portion of these questions, um, when the first seal is broken and the Antichrist comes on the scene, if in fact Paul is describing in 2 Thessalonians 2 the idea that the restrainer as the Holy Spirit active in the church is removed and then uh, the Antichrist is revealed, then yes, I think that the opening of that seal follows the rapture of the church. And so, um, and again, there are differing views on how that unfolds, and we have respect for the fact that people hold different views, but but that would be uh, where I'm coming from on there. And of course, that probably is no secret if you've been watching this podcast for any length of time. Uh, the second question that Bill raises also keeps us in the book of Revelation, and this is a fun one. And uh, um, uh, the two witnesses are... Uh, in Jerusalem for three and a half years, and are they calling down the trumpet judgments one by one? Could this possibly explain why the world celebrates their death? Well, this now takes us over to Revelation chapter 11. Chapter 11 and 12 uh, are, uh, are fascinating chapters. In chapter 11, we have um, the uh, arrival of these two witnesses on the scene, and then chapter 12, uh, after... Um, uh, after they are killed and rise up again, then this tremendous persecution of Israel takes place. The woman, sun, moon, and stars are, are, are shown and this kind of thing. It's, it's a very, very exciting section uh, of the book of Revelation. Well, um, here in uh, chapter 11 of Revelation, it begins by saying this, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months, or three and a half years. Uh, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days, which is the same period of time. Uh, It's the same length of time, I should say. There is some question as to when this happens, and that will lead us into our, uh, our discussion on this. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike uh, the earth with all plagues as often as they desire." And then when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. 
Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth uh, will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their uh, enemies saw them. Uh, And it goes on to speak of a great earthquake coming, and the second woe is now past, and such. The third woe is coming quickly. Um, I read read that whole passage there because this constitutes what we know about the two witnesses. And so the question is raised then, um, are are they calling down the trumpet judgments, trumpet judgments, judgments, tongue twisted there for a second, uh, that ultimately come a couple of chapters later after a number of other events take place. Again, chapters 12 and 13, where we see um, the woman, uh, Israel, being persecuted by the dragon. We see uh, the rise of Antichrist uh, to that place where he now fully is realized as the advers- uh Now, the, I shouldn't blend meta- uh, terminology here, but he, be- he rises to the point where he becomes... Um, the focal point of mankind's rebellion against Christ in Christ's return in chapter 19. But in chapter 13, we see him rise with the false prophet in this kind of thing. And then ultimately, through chapter 15, we then see the what is really the prelude to these final seven judgments, uh, the bold judgments, that then begin in chapter 16. So, are the two prophets calling down uh, these, uh, well, I guess he's, uh, uh, um, uh, Bill asked about the trumpet judgments, but whether, uh, which, whichever judgments they may be involved in, we have to look at the text and let the text explain to us how much, not just what we know, but how much we know. The truth is we don't know if in fact the judgments that are being called down, trumpet judgments or bold judgments, are a direct, directly connected with the testimony of the uh, two witnesses. Now, I will say, because we can't say with any certainty, I think the idea that is raised, both by Bill and others, the idea that that they are connected with the judgments that are coming from God is a reasonable one. I mean, there's mention here back in chapter 11 about how they're able to call plagues and all this kind of thing. And so there, there does seem to be uh, the potential for the connection between these plagues being uh, that are spoken of here being the same as those that are described in greater detail uh, between the trumpets and even the bowl judgments. Also, if we consider who the two witnesses may be, uh, the, the description of their capacities and what they do, uh, both in terms of their, uh, you know, their, their personages and their activities, Again, there's debate about who, you know, if they in fact are these two people, but it might very well be that these two witnesses are in fact two Old Testament personages who are brought back for this time uh, at the end, uh, namely Moses and Elijah. We think about the plagues and, and turning uh, waters into blood and this kind of thing. We think of Moses and the plagues that he brought. Uh, we think about fire from heaven and such. We think about Elijah, the way he dis- dispatched the prophets of Baal and that. Um, so there are similarities between the ministries of Moses and Elijah and these two witnesses, and that has caused many, uh, not only that, by the way, but both Moses and Elijah both have strange circumstances surrounding their leaving of this world. Uh, in Elijah's case, he's, I, I don't want to just casually use the word rapture, but he is carried away 
uh, in this with this chariot of fire in that, uh, and Elisha takes on his ministry with a double portion in that. But he's gone. He doesn't actually die. In Moses' case, we realize that uh, he does die. But when you read about his death, there's like this. There seems to be this emphasis on the fact that he didn't die of old age or disease. He wasn't killed in a battle or anything. He just expired, and then God buried him. Uh, it's almost like we're supposed to stop and kind of go, wait a minute, what? there's something strange going on here when you read the passage. Now, we don't really want to speculate a whole lot about why it's, uh, you know, the circumstances around his death. We, we know that something different is going on there. He clearly didn't just die because he was old, even though he was old, but it speaks of him being still full of vigor. Um, he didn't die in a battle or anything. He just ends. And then again, this idea that God buries him. Um, and so, and then, you know, connected with that, we see in Jude where there is this mention almost casually about this idea that, that you know, Michael the archangel and Satan are arguing over the body of Moses and this kind of thing. So there are some strange circumstances around Moses, uh, around Moses' death, um, and then Elijah doesn't even die. And so because of these factors, uh, there are many, myself included, I tend to think there's some validity to the idea that these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Now, there are other candidates for this too, by the way. Uh, Enoch, seventh from Adam, who is in fact raptured uh, before the flood in that. He is taken off the earth by the Lord. He was walking, then he was not, for God took him. Um, so he could be a contender because he never actually died. Um, or what about, um, you know, uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel or other candidates in that, the, 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 the branches and such. And so there, there are theories about different people that this could be, and we don't really know. It also could just be two people that are not ever mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. We don't, we don't really know. And so we can't be dogmatic about it. It's just kind of fun to play with these different ideas and consider. It'll be fun to watch when this ultimately unfolds. I believe it from the balcony. But we'll be able to watch and see how this unfolds, and we'll be able to look at each other and say, oh, I knew it. It was Moses and Elijah, whoever it ends up being. But as far as um, are they connected with the plagues that are the tr- like the trumpet judgments or the bowl judgments, here's where um, we just have to sort of um, throw our hands up and say we don't really know. And part of the reason for that is because we don't know exactly when their ministry happens. Typically, there are, maybe basically, there are three views on when their ministry could take place. One would be in the first half of the 70th week, leading up to the Great Tribulation. This view has some merit. It also has some problems. Appearing in the second half of the Tribulation, uh, this also has some merit, but it also raises some issues as far as the number of days that are involved in those kinds of things. Uh, The third view is one that their ministry begins in the first half at some point and finishes at some point in the second half. Um, So truth of the matter is we don't know. I I don't know if they're part of the bowl judgments because it does seem uh, that when when these judgments are coming, described in the bowl judgments or the vile judgments based on what what English version you're, uh, you're reading, which English translation, but in any case, and then what's in view there are shallow bowls that are, you know, um, uh, easily and quickly poured out kind of a thing. But anyway, uh, when those bowls are poured out, uh, there seems to be this uh, mention a few times along the way of the people 
cursing out the God of heaven and this kind of thing and, and blaspheming his name and such. There's no mention of the witnesses during that period of time, uh, specifically or directly. It it's always seems to be directed toward the Lord. Um, now, the truth is that when it comes to the trumpet judgments as well, um, there also seems to be this, um, this absence of mention of the two witnesses. They're not really mentioned until after the trumpet judgments are described. Add to this another dilemma that we have when we interpret the book of Revelation. Uh, and that is that John has the unenviable position, albeit um, one inspired by the Holy Spirit, he has the unenviable position of being in, in the midst of seeing this vision of the revelation uh, being shown to him. He is caught up again, remembered to heaven, to see this on the Lord's day. And so, in the presence of God, he is potentially at least, I tend to think he is, but I'll just say potentially because I can't really prove this for sure. But he would, it would appear, at least I think so, that he's outside of the normal view of time. He's in the presence of God watching these things take place that may or may not be, and I tend to think in some instances along the way in the book of Revelation, he's not necessarily seeing every event that is described in the linear fashion that we read about it in the book. Now, that that helps us understand the book of Revelation better because if you try to put everything in a straight line and say this is the exact order of everything that takes place, you have some issues because the Battle of Armageddon is described both in chapter 16, although it doesn't actually take place until chapter 19. Uh, and there are other things like that throughout the book that we just have to take into consideration as we try to unpack what is being described there. Well, I think part of the reason for the way it's laid out is the fact that at least the the proposition is that, I shouldn't say fact, but the the proposition I'm laying forth is that that John is seeing lots of different things, and maybe he's even seeing them in a completely different kind of a way than you and I would see them, uh, than you and I could see them on the earth where we do live in time and space. So I'm not trying to get all weird and 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 you know physics whatever kind of a thing but i do think that there is something to the idea that john is taking in all of this input and when it comes time to write it as he's told to right i mean his job from the lord is to write this stuff down and of course under the inspiration and guidance of the holy spirit he writes these things but it's not necessarily completely linear in terms of the way it's laid out because it may be that it would be impossible to describe these things and how they happen in a, in a way that could be read and understood if they were laid out in a linear fashion. So, um, so could the witnesses, uh, I guess to come back around, could the witnesses uh, be connected? And maybe a better way to put that is, could the trumpet judgments um, you know, and or the bowl judgments be uh, the result of the work of the, uh, the ministry of the witnesses? It could be. It could be. Uh, is it the reason why the world celebrates their death? Well, I think even just the description in chapter 11 of what they do, even if they are not connected with the trumpet judgments or bowl judgments, the fact that they are uh, doing the work that they're doing, calling down fire on those that try to kill them, bringing plagues upon the earth and that kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know that it necessitates being connected with the trumpets or bowls in order for them to want to see these guys dead. I think uh, just the fact that they're doing this wants to see them dead. Um 
the fact that um, that Antichrist seems to not be able to touch them for a period of time, but the Antichrist is is are, is the Earth Dweller's guy. He's the one that they're propping up. Is you know um, he's growing in this in this sense of maybe even being divine in the eyes of the world and that kind of thing. And these two guys are a particularly uh, problematic pebble in his shoe and in the world's shoe in that regard. So I don't know. It may be. Uh, it might be, and I think it's certainly as, as valid a potential uh, possibility as, as many others that are laid out in regard to who these witnesses are and what their connection with the plagues might be. So uh, I'm sorry that doesn't totally answer the question, because I, I don't know that we can really say with certainty. Um, and, uh, and whereas I love to be able to firmly plant my feet on some things, I'm always thankful when there's a very clear understanding of something that we can say unequivocally, this is what this is. Uh, in this particular case, this is one of those where I just have to sort of step back and say, okay, well, I, I don't really know that we can say from the text if that is in fact the case or not. And the text always has to drive the discussion. Uh, we don't read into the text. The text tells us what it says, and then we build our understanding and even our case upon that. So um, great questions, though. Great questions. And again, fun to explore and consider. I have to admit, I'm uh, even sort of still in the place where I'm trying to figure out where I situate the witnesses in regard to uh, in regard to the 70th week, you know, and I, I'm again tending to fall uh, in sort of that position where they start in the first half but continue into the second half uh, just because there doesn't seem like it's clean enough to say that they're the first three and a half years or the second three and a half years. There's problems with both that seem to be dealt with when you allow it to sort of cross from the first half into the second half. We'll see. Uh, how it pans out ultimately. And I'm excited again from the balcony, I believe, to watch how that uh, all all comes together. So there you go. And uh, thanks for asking the questions. And, uh, you know, as things come in, I've still got probably a half a dozen uh, things that have come in that I'm uh, wanting to get to at some point. I have to tell you, though, I'm um, really loving uh, going through the book of uh, Romans with you all, though, too. And so we're about to come up pretty soon uh, uh, toward the end of chapter 8, where we talk about the golden chain of redemption. We move into chapters 9 through 11, which are are challenging and open up some very, very uh, often emotionally driven, uh, emotionally sparking kinds of uh, passages regarding the sovereignty of God and uh, and and man's free will or not and that kind of thing. Uh, I'm, I'm intentionally kind of stoking that a little bit, so you'll continue to watch. But um, we're going to go through those things, and and again, as always, um, prayerfully and with our best um, our best effort, try to understand these things, and so praying the Holy Spirit's guidance through that. So, thanks for watching, and uh, may the Lord bless and keep you, make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace forever. Father, we thank you for your Word and how you have laid out for us. Uh, in a lot of detail, what's going to be coming down the road. And we thank you that uh, you've sparked within us uh, a desire to know these things as we're students of your word. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to bring the necessary uh, humility and also uh, intentionality to understand. Uh, and, and so we, we like, you know, like kings would be encouraged to uncover a matter and such. We want to really dive in and and, uh, and understand these things to the best of our ability. We know that many have gone before, and there will be some, should you tarry, that will come after, that will uh, put their hand to the plow on this and, and do their best to understand. And many, again, in the past have tried as well. And we are thankful to count uh, ourselves among the number of those who seek to understand these things. So we pray that, Lord, you'd help us. At the end of it all, we're very, very grateful that however these things pan out, 
that, Lord, we're going to one day see you face to face. We're going to glory in your presence. We're going to worship alongside of our brothers and sisters from all ages around the throne, from every tribe, tongue, nation, uh, and time and place. And we're going to be arm in arm, glorifying you, exalting you, and enjoying your presence forever. Thank you for that glorious hope. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in and through us, helping us to become more like Christ each day until that time comes. So thank you, Father. We love you. We bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.